Thank you for listening to this message from the pulpit of New Grace Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. We hope the message you are about to hear is a blessing to you and your family. All right. Rest of you, go ahead and get your Bibles open to 1 Corinthians chapter number 11. 1 Corinthians chapter number 11. Connor, on the far soundboard number 7. Or don't worry about that. Just turn the handheld up a little bit on the main. No? Okay, never mind. April says it's fine. All right. Our country is, you know, it's full of division. Uh, every everywhere you look, there's division uh, amongst groups of people. Of course, you know there's Republican versus Democrat. Although now there's Republican versus Republican, and Democrat versus Democrat. You know, someone's not liberal enough. Someone's not conservative enough. Uh, you know, there are Yankee fans versus Red Sox fans. Uh, people who think Jordan is the greatest basketball player to ever live, and those who are wrong and think it's LeBron James. Uh, and, of course, we live in Virginia, so most people are either UVA fans or Virginia Tech fans. Uh, you know, football season, college football is just nine weeks away. I'm not, I'm not counting down or anything, but in nine weeks, uh, the college football season will begin. Um, and usually it starts off pretty friendly. About November, the rivalry between UVA and Tech gets a little heated, especially recently because they have both stunk so superbly. The only opportunity they have to pull out a decent season is to beat each other. Uh, So there are people uh, in my life who I will avoid. Uh, I will block them or silence them on Facebook during football season. Uh, Now, the Church of Corinth, they were filled with division as well. Now, their division was a lot more serious than which sports team to root for. Um, Their division, were they had divisions over convictions, Uh, how you should live your life as a believer, about what was right and wrong. They had divisions over culture and class. You know, the Church of Corinth was a very diverse church. It was filled with people from different ages, uh, different cultures, different backgrounds, different races, and even different classes. Um, And they had very deep divisions over really secondary issues, Uh, Issues that had nothing to do with the gospel or with the church or with truly following Christ. They were divided over political ideologies, over how to worship. And when Jesus created his church, he didn't want his church to be uniform. He didn't want us all to look the same, act the same, talk the same, uh, believe the same about other, you know, there are things we're supposed to believe the same on, uh, the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But you know, different things like, okay, how to worship, what to wear, things like that, what to eat. Uh, He didn't want us to all be the same and believe the same in those things. He didn't want us to be uniform, but he did want to have unity in the church. And for the church at Corinth, one place that they should have displayed the most unity was during the observance of the Lord's Supper. But this was one of the most divisive times in the church at Corinth. So let's go look at 1 Corinthians 11. We're going to start reading verse number 17 this morning. <clears throat> Bible says, Now in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not, that you were come together not for the better, but for the worse. 
For first of all, when you come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. For there must also be heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. When you come together, therefore, in one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, everyone taketh before his own uh, supper, and one is hungry, and another is drunken. What? Have you not houses to eat in and drink in? Or despise ye the church of God, and shame them that have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not." See, Paul begins by really explaining to the church at Corinth that the way they are observing the Lord's Supper, the way they are worshiping God and taking this, this precious uh, uh, ordinance and this, this wonderful observance uh, is terrible. He goes, you know, it would be better if you, if you never met in the first place. If you, didn't, if you didn't even observe the Lord's Supper, it would be better than what you're doing in the, during this time. Uh, during this time in church history, of course, there were no church buildings. You didn't wake up on Sunday morning, get dressed, have your coffee or whatever you do in the morning and then, you know, come to a church building where you've got an ancient uh, Clarence opening the door for you and there's an ancient, you know, uh, Jewish Danny walking around singing for you. That didn't happen. So when you wanted to go to church, you went to someone's house. Now, typically, the people who hosted the church service were wealthy, uh, mainly because they were the ones who had the space to accommodate everyone. They had large houses, they had plenty of room, and so it wasn't a, it, you know, it was easy for them to host the church service, and so people would come to a house, and it was usually a wealthy person, but what they would do during this time is every Sunday, they would gather together before the church service began, and they would have a meal together, and it wasn't just like finger foods, you know, wasn't someone brought a, you know, a vegetable tray, they had a full meal, uh, and they would eat together, they would fellowship together, and after the meal, they would have church together. It's, it's a lot like our fifth Sunday, but they, did, they ate before church as opposed to after church. Now, we don't do that because if we fed y'all before church, you would just leave before church and not come back. You'd be like, oh, I'm so full, i got to go home and take a nap. And I understand, I want to do that too. And so it was a lot like a fifth Sunday, but with, church, with the meal before church. Now, as a, part of the, as a part of the worship service, they would celebrate or observe the Lord's Supper. So they would come together. They would have this big meal, this big fellowship meal together. They would have the church service. Then they would observe the Lord's Supper. Now, the rich people always arrived early for this fellowship time. They didn't have to work. And so Sunday morning, they don't, they don't have to go and, you know, they didn't have, they had servants to take care of their livestock and their fields. So they didn't, they didn't have to do anything. So they were able to get there early while the poorer, the poorer people, they had to go out in the fields, they had to tend their livestock, they had to make sure the harvest, they had to do all the work of a uh, farming community before they came to church. So the rich people are getting there earlier than everybody else. And they are, basically they are eating all the food they're drinking all the wine. They're having a wonderful time. Then the poor people show up just before church service. And, you know, so they're, they're hungry, but there's nothing left to eat except on the vegetable tray, someone's left a cauliflower, because no one eats the cauliflower 
in a vegetable tray. So they're hungry, they're thirsty, they're kind of aggravated by the rich people because the rich people are just hanging around having a great time. They're, they're, Paul even says they're a little drunk in church. And so they've come to church, they've eaten too much, they've drank too much, they're, they're a little tipsy before the worship service. And because they got there early, they got the best seats. They met in the grand hall and were able to fill up all the seats. And then the poor people get there, they got nothing to eat, nothing to drink. And they're kind of stuck in the overflow room because there's no room for them in the main building, the main room. So there's a lot of division in this church. You've got basically you have two different churches meeting together in one location. Now they're in separate rooms, but you've got the rich, well-fed, kind of tipsy, rich you know, people in one really nice room. Then the other room... You've got the poor, hungry, thirsty, angry people in a lesser room, in a porch, kind of in the overflow room. And so it caused a lot of bitterness and resentment throughout the church. You know, the rich people, they really didn't want to be associated with the poor. The poor people felt excluded. And so during the observance of the Lord's Supper, which is a time of unity and remembrance of what Jesus did, these groups are in different rooms. And it's causing a lot of problems. And Paul is infuriated by this. Look what he says in verse 22 again. It says, what? Have you not houses to eat and to drink in, or despise ye the church of God and shame them that have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. Paul's like, look, you people can eat at home. There's no reason to have this big fellowship meal. This meal's causing problems. You don't, you've, you've all got houses to eat in. Eat your breakfast at home. Eat, your, you know, eat lunch, whatever day at time of day it is. Eat that meal. Do what you got to do at home. Then come to church. Because we should be coming to church not to eat, but to worship. And so it's a very difficult time. So to address this, Paul gives a, a theology of the Lord's Supper. And he, he's really explaining to the church at Corinth and to us that if we really understood the meaning of the Lord's Supper, and if we really understood this theology of the Lord's Supper, then there wouldn't be division in the church anymore. So let's continue reading in verse number 23. For I have received of the Lord... That which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup, when he had supped, saying, This cup is a new testament in my blood, this do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread... And drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. Wherefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, tarry one for another. So Paul, 
he summarizes his theology of the Lord's Supper in three words. And here's the first word we're going to look at this morning. The first word is proclaim. Proclaim is the next slide, Connor. Proclaim. See, he just lost five bucks. I told him five bucks if he never had to talk to him. So there you go. Now I've got to cut off his ear. Uh, look at verse number 26 again. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's work, death till he come. Now, show is the Greek word katangelo, and it means to proclaim. It's, it's translated preach in other locations. Now, when you think of preaching, you think of what I'm doing right now. Someone standing up in front of a, a congregation or a group of people teaching the Word of God, preaching the Word of God, really explaining what the Word of God is. And that is what preaching is. But Paul says that the Lord's Supper is a proclamation in itself. The Lord's Supper is a sermon that we preach to the world. Um, now, the, the bread and the cup, they are, they are visual aids, if you will. They are sermon props. Uh, you know, I've been told I need to use more props in my sermons, keep people interested. And I try every once in a while, but then, you know, I'm like, well, if they're not interested in the Word of God, I'm not going to sit up here and do a song and dance for them. Uh, that's not what I think. I really think I don't have time to come up with these illustrations and all that stuff. But I know a lot of pa some pastors do use sermon illustrations and props all the time, and they're really engaging. That's what the, the bread is. That's what the juice is. It is a symbol. It is a sermon prop to use to declare a message to the world. Uh, so what is the Lord's Supper proclaiming? What are we preaching when we observe the Lord's Supper? Well, the first thing we're, we're proclaiming is that we need to be saved. That's the first proclamation that we are making, that we are sinners in need of salvation. You know, the night before the crucifixion, Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper with his uh, disciples. They gathered together to observe the Passover, and he gave them the ordinance or the observance of the Lord's Supper. And he, he held up the bread and said, This is my body, which is broken for you for the forgiveness of sins. If salvation could have been attained any other way, then Jesus would not have had to die. If salvation was available to be gained through good works or good deeds, then Jesus would have not, wouldn't have had to die. If there were multiple ways to get to God, multiple ways of salvation, then Jesus wouldn't have had to die for us. You know, in the garden... Before he's arrested, Jesus, he's, he's burdened down by what's about to happen. He knows that he's going to be arrested, he's going to be betrayed, he's going to be beaten. But he knows that for a brief time, he's going to have the sins of humanity placed on him. And he's going to be separated from God the Father while he is absorbing the wrath of God for our sins. And he's, he's sweating great drops of blood, the Bible says. And he prays and he says, Father, if there's any way for mankind to be saved besides what I'm about to do, then let this cup pass before me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. You know, God didn't say, well, you know, son, there, there are a lot of ways, actually, but I think this is going to be a good illustration for humanity. So I know there's other ways for them to get to heaven, but let's just let's go ahead with this anyway. No, the only way for us to be saved was for Jesus to come 
live a perfect life, die on the cross, a death we should have taken, absorb the wrath of God in our place, been buried and rise again three days later. That's the only way for us to be saved. And that's what we're proclaiming when we observe the Lord's Supper. The bread and the cup, they proclaim our need of salvation. See, being sincere is not good enough. Being a good person is not good enough. Trying to do right is not good enough. Coming to church every Sunday is not enough. Giving money to the church is not enough. The Bible says we must be born again. And as we observe the Lord's Supper, we are declaring to the world we need to be saved just like they need to be saved. But here's the second thing that we're proclaiming. We're not only proclaiming that we need to be saved, we're proclaiming that you can be saved. Jesus did not put stipulations on salvation. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. This is my blood, which is shed for you. So if you look in the the Greek at these two words when he says for you, and you look up the word you, it literally means you. How many of you here are a you? You are all yous. That means Jesus died for every you in the world, which is everyone who's ever lived. You know, your sins are not too big. Your past is not too shameful that Jesus can't save you. He died, his body was broken, his blood was shed for everyone. See, that is the main problem with Calvinism, or now they call it Reformed Christianity. You know what reformed mean? Reformed literally means to change to improve something. Now they've changed the gospel, but they haven't improved the thing. They've said, we're going we're gonna to change it so that God, we, we're teaching that God only died for a certain amount of people. God died for the elect. And if you're not the elect, you're out of luck. God didn't die for you. But Jesus didn't say, I'm going to shed my blood, I'm going to break my body for a few people. He didn't say, for God to love the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that this group that believes on him should be saved, but the rest of you are tough out of luck. No, he goes, no, I'm going to die for everyone. I'm going to shed my blood for anyone and everyone. John 6, 54 says, Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up in the last days. We are included in that whoso. The entire world is included in whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood. See, here's the thing. If Jesus had given a list of the types of sins that he would forgive, we'd always wonder if my sin's included in that. If you say, well, I'm going to forgive liars, but he didn't list someone who lusts, we think, well, he didn't. Maybe, maybe my sins are too big for him. Maybe my shame's too great for him. You know, whoso includes anyone from anywhere, no matter who what their sins are or what their mistake is. See, the Lord's Supper proclaims that no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, there is a place at the table for you. We all need to be saved, and because of his death, burial, and resurrections, we all can be saved. You can be the biggest sinner in the world. And salvation's available to you. We know that because Paul said 
in Scripture, which always felt bad for Paul, I mean, because it's written down, God inspired him, so he's writing what the Holy Spirit's telling him, and the Holy Spirit's saying, hey, God wants you to write, you're the biggest sinner that ever lived. I think Paul, like, really, me? Peter cussed. You know, he, he cut off that guy's ear. He, but Paul, by inspiration of Scripture, had to say, I'm the biggest sinner that's ever been, but salvation's available to him. Sometimes I feel like I got Paul beat with my sins. But no matter what my sins are, no matter what my past is, salvation is available to everybody. We proclaim that we need to be saved. We proclaim that we can be saved. And thirdly, we proclaim that suffering and death are not the end for us. Paul says, you're gonna, Jesus said, you're going to observe this, you're going to do this, you're going to remember this until... I come back. You know, in this world, good people suffer. Good people have bad things happen to them. Good people get sick. Good people are betrayed. Good people have accidents. Good people have financial difficulties. We are going to have suffering on this earth. We are going to live with hardship, but the Lord's Supper proclaims that this world and even death and poverty are not the end for us, end for us, that Jesus rose from the grave and he will come back and get us one day. He will return. The gospel says to the poor, you won't be poor forever because Jesus is coming back in triumph and you will feast with him at the marriage supper of the Lamb. To the sick, the Lord's Supper says, you're not going to be sick forever. You may suffer for a little while, but the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings one day. To the oppressed, the Lord's Supper says, you won't be oppressed for long because the righteous judge is coming back to make all things right. To the lonely, to the abandoned, Jesus says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Yeah, I left, but I left to prepare a place and I am coming to receive you back one day. Lord's Supper tells us what we're going through now is not the end. That one day, because of his death, because of his broken body, because of his shed blood, because of his resurrection, one day, everything will be made new. The fourth thing that the Lord's Supper proclaims is that this church is first and foremost a community of the forgiven. We all need to be saved. We all can be saved. All the suffering we're going through is just temporary. That creates equality. See, religion, religious pride has no place at the Lord's table. In Romans, I'm sorry, in Galatians, Paul says, you know, we, we're saved by grace through faith, not of works, so that nobody can boast. Ephesians, not Galatians, Ephesians. That we're, we're, we're not saved because we're good people. We're not saved because we were born into the right family. We're not saved because we went to the right schools or we, we gave enough money. We're not saved by anything so that no one can boast and say, hey, I'm better than you. Yeah, you're a Christian too. You're a church member too. But, but I had to do more to get saved than you did. We are all equal at the cross. You know, Isaiah says that our righteousness is this filthy rag and get rags in God's eyes. The blood of Jesus is our only hope. The Lord's Supper was modeled after the Passover meal. The Passover was a time where the Israelites would remember 
how God had delivered them from slavery. And when God led them out of Egypt to freedom, there were no rich slaves and poor slaves. They were just slaves who were being led free by God. There are no rich believers, and well, no, there are rich believers and poor believers, I'm not saying that, but that doesn't change anything with God. Your, your pedigree, you know, like, well, I, I grew up in church. My daddy was a preacher. My mama was a, was a preacher's wife, and man, she sang in the choir, and we got all this, this history, we got all this pedigree, and I've never done anything wrong in my life, and I've lived a good, wholesome, you know, life, and I've given my, my, my life to treating, you know, to helping the poor, and I've given my money to the church, and no matter what you've done, God says, everyone is welcome here. Everyone is equal here. The Lord's Supper proclaims that everyone is equal at the cross. Jesus died and rose again for everybody. Second word we're going to look at is the word participate. Look at back at verse number 27. <clears throat> Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Now, the word participate is not seen in this chapter, but it is implied in verse number 27. Paul tells us that we are not to participate in the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, because if we do so, we are sinning against Christ's body. He says to observe the Lord's Supper unworthily means you are touching something holy. Remember in the Old Testament when after they led the captive of Egypt and God gave them the plans for the tabernacle and the ark and they built the ark. Remember the one rule that God had about the ark? Nobody touch it. High priest couldn't touch it. Even on the Day of Atonement, the high priest could not touch it. He could come near it and sprinkle the blood on it, but he couldn't touch it. Because to touch it was to bring death. And we saw that a couple of times. You know, they, David is bringing the ark back from captivity with the Philistines. And he's got it on a cart. And man, there's a great parade. And people are celebrating. And the cart hits a pothole. And it starts to rock. And it's about to fall. And one man who loved God and wanted to serve God runs up and puts his hands on it to stabilize it so that God's ark doesn't fall. God kills him dead. Why? He touched something holy. This is a holy time. This is a precious time. These are symbols of Christ's death in our place, his shed blood, his broken body. And we need to make sure our heart is right with him. You know, right before this chapter, Paul uses this word participation in chapter 10, verse 16. Uh, he says, the cup of blessing which we bless is not the communion of the blood of is not the communion of the blood of Christ the bread which we break is not the communion of the body of Christ the word communion literally means joint participation and it goes deep it doesn't mean it's just something that we do together it literally means we are doing this not just with other believers but we're doing this with Jesus that this is a special time 
where we enter into the presence of Jesus. Now, look, we're always in his presence. His spirit lives inside of us. He's there with us all the time. But this, this is a special time where God shows us his love a little bit differently, a little bit deeper. We are in fellowship with Christ during this ordinance. Now, a lot of people, some people think that this verse means that when we take the juice and we take the bread, that it literally becomes the blood of Jesus and the flesh of Jesus. It's transubstantiation. Now, that's not what's happening. We're not going to eat this bread and become the blood of the, the, the body of Christ. We're not going to drink this juice and become the blood of Jesus. And there's nothing that we can do to make us righteous through the Lord's Supper. We are only made righteous by believing the word of God, by trusting in his shed blood and his broken body as payment for our sins. When you trust Christ as Savior, you receive the full righteousness of him. Galatians 3 says, Receive you the Spirit by works of the law or by the hearing of faith. We do not receive the Spirit of God by observing the Lord's Supper. We, observe, we receive his Spirit by hearing the gospel and accepting it. We receive his spirit the same way we were given righteousness by God, by believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, the Lord's Supper is a symbol of the body and the blood of Christ, but it's more than a symbolic ceremony. We are experiencing the presence of God, the presence of Christ in a special way. I want you to look at this picture. Connor? That's me and Lexi when she loved me. Or when she acted like she loved me. You can probably see it better on the TV back there. But she, man, she used to be a daddy's girl. She would climb in my, and I didn't stage this. I've tried to recreate it, but she won't let me touch her. Uh, but, you know, she, I was just sitting on the couch. I think it was a Sunday afternoon. She climbed up with her, her you know, Kool-Aid mustache and just cuddled me. And she would do that. Uh, she would snuggle up with me. Now, times have changed. You know, she, if I tried to do this now, she's going to hit me. She's going to scratch me. She's going to tell me I have to give her her personal space. And I can't invade her bubble of protection, these, you know, Gen Z stupid words that they use nowadays, uh, but, you know, she's not happy with it. Now, am I any less of her father today than I was in this picture? No. Do I love her any less today than I did in this picture? I like her less, but I love her the same. Uh, she, she gets on my nerves a little bit more, but I'm still just as much her father. I still love her just as much. My presence is no further away from her then, now than it was then. But she felt my presence in a special way then. She felt my love in a special way then. That's what happens at the Lord's Supper. His presence manifests itself in a special way. His arms feel a little bit closer. His hugs feel a little bit tighter. He assures us that we are his children and he loves us. But here's a third, third word Paul gives us. Examine. Examine. Verse 28 again. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. There is a danger with the Lord's Supper. 
the danger is that we take it unworthily and bring God's judgment on us. Now, what does it mean to take the Lord's Supper unworthily? It can't mean that we only observe the Lord's Supper, we only partake in the Lord's Supper when we are worthy of it because we never are. None of us are worthy to take part in this because none of us are worthy to be in his presence. At your best day, at the best, the, you, I mean, you wake up one morning and you read your Bible and you, God's speaking to you and you pray and you hear God's voice and you go out and you, on the best day, you have a day where you don't sin at all. That's probably a day you're in a coma, but anyway. Say you go out and you're interact and you're showing the love of God's people and you're you just have an incredible day of loving God and feeling God and being in his presence on that best day you are still an unprofitable servant not worthy of God's love not worthy of God's righteousness you know even though you are forgiven we all have corruption in our hearts we all have that sin nature so it doesn't mean we only take it when we are worthy because we never are. See, unworthily in the Greek here is an adverb, not an adjective. Now, what's the difference? An adjective describes a person. An adverb describes an action. If it were an adjective, Paul would be saying that we can only take it when we are worthy to receive it. But here's the thing. We are all always unworthy of Christ's sacrifice. So Paul isn't saying that we have to do it when we're worthy of his blood and worthy of his body. He's saying something different. It's an adverb. And so he is telling us that we can approach this table. We can observe the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Now, what does that look like? What does it look like to partake of the Lord's Supper unworthily? Well, if you observe the Lord's Supper and you have a spirit of self-righteousness, you're observing the Lord's Supper unworthily. If you don't realize how dependent you are on Christ's mercy, if you don't truly understand or see that your only hope is in the shed blood, the broken body, and the resurrection of Jesus, you are approaching the table in an unworthy way because you are failing to see how unworthy you are of it. So here's the thing. If you think you are worthy, then you approach this table unworthily. If you realize you're unworthy, then you approach it worthily. It's ironic, isn't it? You've got to realize how bad you are to be able to take this in a worthy way manner. We approach it unworthily when we have a spirit of self-righteousness. We approach it unworthily when we have a spirit of defiance. When we are not 100% surrendered to him. When you are openly and intentionally living in a way that displeases him. When you are living with unconfessed and unrepentant sin in your life. Because here's the thing. Taking the Lord's Supper is us publicly saying, God, we thank you for Jesus, his life, his death in our place, and his resurrection as payment for our sins. We are saying that with our actions, but our life 
is saying, God, we're glad he died for those sins, but we're going to still do those sins that hung him on the cross. We're still going to live our life the way we want to. If you have unconfessed and unrepentant sin in your life, don't take the Lord's Supper. Now, here's the thing. I'm not saying if you're struggling with sin. We all struggle with sin. We all have things that we go to God. Sometimes we go to him every single day, sometimes multiple times a day, and say, God, I did it again. I'm so sorry. God, I need your help to overcome this. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about those attitudes, those actions, those feelings you have. You're like, I know this displeases God. I know God doesn't want me doing this or living this way, but I don't care. I'm going to do what I want to do because that's what I want to do. The Bible says that uh, his death and resurrection give healing and hope for those that are sick. But if you don't realize you're sick, if you don't want to give up your sin, if you enjoy living your life your way without caring what God says, don't take the Lord's Supper. You eat unworthily when you have a spirit of, 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 of disobedience. We also eat unworthily when we have a spirit of division. Look at verse 33 again. Wherefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, tarry one for another. Do not take the Lord's Supper if there is division in your life with someone else. If you've got pride or racism or resentment or unforgiveness for another person, God says you're taking it unworthily. Don't come claiming to cherish God's forgiveness for you when you refuse to forgive someone else. Don't come if you're divided from a brother or sister in Christ over some petty secondary issue. There may be someone here who you have a struggle with because they're more, more Democrat than you are. Probably not, but they're more Republican than you are. Or your, your ideologies over political things are, are different. You will hate someone and you will separate from someone because they have a different political viewpoint of you. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that if you're offering a gift to God and you have division in your heart between another brother and sister in Christ, he doesn't say... Well, give your offering and then go make it right. He goes, no, no, no. You better take your offering, go make it right with them. Once it's right with them, then you can come and give your offering. Paul's saying the same thing. If there's a vision in your heart between God or another believer, Paul says you better get it right before you take the Lord's Supper. But what happens if you don't? Look at verse 30. For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. Paul says, seriously here, he's not joking. This isn't a, you know, he's not like, like I'm about to say, like, oh, some of you sleep. I guess some of y'all are unworthy because you're sleeping during the service. Uh, that's not what he's saying. He's saying there are some of you who are, you're struggling. You're suffering in life. Maybe you're suffering with sickness. Some of you have been, have died because you haven't taken the Lord's Supper seriously. Not everyone who takes in an unworthy manner gets sick or dies. But Paul says some do. And it's, you know, it, we're, I'm glad that not everyone who takes the Lord's Supper unworthily dies because if that were the case, we wouldn't have a church or we would never observe the Lord's Supper because none of us can truly come here. But Paul says, look, you better make sure that everything is right between you and God and you and other believers before you do this. But even if not, even if no one has ever gotten sick or ever died because they took the Lord's Supper unworthily, 
it shows how seriously God takes it. It shows how fanatical God is about it. That God says this is a sacred moment that we're not supposed to just be flipping about. You know, this moment, it should be a moment of incredible gospel clarity where we as a church, we put on a visible display of unity, not just with God, but unity with each other. We declare our common hope in Jesus is more important than anything secondary that divides us. It's a time of togetherness, where we gather together with God's family for a precious time with our Father. You know, I started talking about college football, so I'm going to end there. I love going to UVA games. Uh, You know, you go to these games, and you sit in the stands, and you're surrounded by people who are there cheering on the same team. You don't know them. You've never met them. You're probably never going to see them again. But I've been in these games where I'm high-fiving people I don't know. I'm hugging them. I don't even know who they are. They, they, they may not even be a Christian. They may, have a, they may you know, have a complete political difference in me. They may have a complete you know, religious different view than me. But I don't care in that moment. We are united over our love for a team. And it's so sad that so many people from so many different backgrounds, so many different beliefs and practices and cultures can come together at a football game and be united and God's people get divided over stupid things. The church should be different. Have different opinions. Have different preferences. Have different thoughts. But we are united under the gospel. We are united through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. This is a wonderful, precious moment. But Paul says there's danger in it. So I want to take some time. I'm going to have Miss Trudy come and play for softly. And I want us all to take some time and do what Paul says. Examine ourselves. Make sure that you don't have a spirit of self-righteousness. Make sure you don't have a spirit of defiance. Make sure you don't have a spirit of division in your heart. Make sure that you are a child of God coming to the Lord's table in a worthy manner. As she begins to play, Thank you for listening to this message from New Grace Baptist Church. For more information about New Grace, check out our website at www.reachingroanoke.com.